Hi, welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Director's Deep Dive Podcast. My name is Andrew. I'm Jake. And this is a podcast about the filmographies of directors we love. So if you caught us last week, you would have known that we are talking about Spike Jones, and we discussed on last week's episode his amazing directorial debut, Being John Malkovich. And this week, we are talking about his amazing follow-up film adaptation before we get into that though and we have a lot to say about this amazing weird and spiraling movie let's talk about some of the things that we saw this week do you have anything notable that you've watched or read or consumed i have nothing notable that i watched i i checked out the netflix film lovebirds which we'll be reviewing on Film and Loathing. So, it's not stuff we're talking about, Andrew, let's be honest here. Yeah. I uh, started rereading Game of Thrones. Nice. I read the first two books, and that's about as far as I got. Okay, I've read, I've read all five, and there's a, there's a whisper through the grapevine that the sixth book is done and on its way. So, I wanted to reread reread them before that six one drops <clears throat> uh, but other than that i have not really consumed anything it's been a crazy week mm-hmm. absolutely it's been weird times i so i haven't watched anything new however i did rewatch uh one of my favorite short films of the last uh probably i would say last decade if not last uh five years and it's this short film called person to person by and i'm apologize because i'm gonna butcher his name but it's dustin guy defa i think is how his last name is pronounced um so it's this really really interesting short film that he then expanded into a full movie that was released in 2017 and the movie itself wasn't fantastic it was you know, really good, but nothing um, extraordinary. Whereas this short film, this very small collected piece is truly uh, extraordinary, where basically what it is, is it stars this guy, this um, record store owner, just uh, kind of a schleppy, just, um, you know, milk toast guy, who has a party at his apartment and then the next day there's this woman passed out there who won't leave his apartment and it's this kind of um kind of woody allen-esque new york uh dramatic comedy about him trying to get this woman out of uh out of his apartment and just basically shows you know him throughout his day telling this story to his customers about this woman who won't leave while kind of intercutting between the events and it's really really fascinating because it's a very understated um really understated short film that leaves a whole lot to the imagination your interpretation about whether you know about the intentions between both of them and you know kind of what secrets people are keeping and it's just this really perfect 
small short film that you can watch. I believe it's 17 minutes long, and it's just this really great New York uh, dramatic comedy shot in 16 millimeter with this amazing lead. I believe the guy's name is Benny Cooper, and it's just it's one of those perfect if you like the films of you know noah Baumbach or um you know i I wouldn't even necessarily i feel like woody allen is um not necessarily like an incorrect comparison but that's the easy one when people go to but it has that sort of you know conversation uh conversational uh style but yeah if you like those sorts of movies i think you would really like it. it's called person the person and uh you can find it right on youtube oh, okay because i was gonna ask if you saw it on the criterion channel no but uh if you're listening to this podcast you should definitely um definitely get the criterion channel app because they have a crazy library of good stuff and um that's actually a good thing to mention is that the june uh library was announced and they put up um a lot of films by mike lee who is one of um the most incredible humanist uh filmmakers ever and you know definitely top 10 of british filmmakers and they also um a filmmaker that i'll admit on this podcast i've never seen any of her work but has been someone i've really been interested in is that they just put in a ton of films by chantal ackerman and so that's going to be uh, that's going to be uh, what I'm going to be watching through June is definitely a lot of those movies. I own Naked and I need to watch it. <clears throat> Naked is great. Uh, incredibly crushing. You know, one of the most depressing movies I've seen, but it's perfect. Um, Excellent. That's the mood I'm in right now. Um, I think Secrets and Lies is my favorite for sure. And it has one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. I haven't actually timed it. I think it's somewhere in the 13 to 17 minute range where you just have this conversation uh, between these two characters with just a camera completely static, not not moving at all, and just it works so perfectly. It well, it's kind of like in Hunger. Yeah, it's just the camera doesn't move at all, and there's just this conversation that just goes from normal people talking to the most crushing, hysterical, you know, emotions possible. And it's just truly genius. So so if you have the Criterion channel and you haven't seen anything by Mike Lee, I definitely recommend Secrets and Lies. I'll definitely check it out. You said, that, you said his whole filmography is going to the Criterion channel? No, I don't believe it's his whole filmography, but it's at least like six or seven films. Okay, so maybe that will be on there, hopefully. Definitely. Um... As far as like other things, uh, reading wise, I've just uh, started back again on Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, which hmm. is uh, one of my favorite books by my all-time favorite author. I've read the book two or three times, but it's one of those things that just kind of you find more and more amazing things, and it, it's um, a brutal read by all. Uh, definitive measures because it's basically about this uh, violent uh, wandering kid who ends up with 
uh, this group of mercen uh, mercenaries in the Texas-Mexico region after um, the Civil War. And it's basically about you know 300 pages of scalping and no punctuation. So if you like uh, verbose, heavy reads, this is way up your alley. Right on. <clears throat> I have heard it's very verbose. Uh, it's a very... It's a great book. A lot of people consider it his masterpiece. Something I think it's interesting if if you haven't read the book, um, if you're reading it for your first time, you're also interested in films. Is that Lynn Ramsey, who directed uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin and You Were Never Really Here, has stated that directing that as a movie has been her sort of biggest goal. Is that she wants to direct Blood Meridian. So I think that's interesting thing i like to think about when i when i'm reading it because i can imagine what she would do with the material oh yeah that's that sounds really interesting i've heard that it's um that like the sentence structure of it is very odd and that there's like a lot of like like a very weird wordage in it yeah like for how sure. it describes yeah. things so the way Cormac McCarthy writes, and you can see it throughout basically all of his books between, you know, whether it's The Road, No Country for Old Men, or Blood Rain, is that he doesn't use punctuation except for um, periods. So, and he doesn't use quotation marks or anything like that. And he does use a lot of super old words and a lot of, like, very like unusual uh unusual words that you have like that haven't used since i don't know like 18 uh 1812 or things like that and uh, so his books definitely especially in blood meridian have this sort of flow to it where you don't know necessarily where someone stops talking and where it becomes like the prose of the author and things like that and so it can sometimes have a somewhat stream of consciousness feel to it okay i definitely remember that from no country for old men for sure definitely so yeah that's been uh me this week so uh going for something completely different in tone the second movie uh for this season that we're looking at it from spike jones is another film with the writing genius charlie coffin called adaptation and it's so hard to kind of put into words what this film is about because it's such a unique film but basically to give a quick synopsis the film stars nicholas cage playing both as the screenwriter charlie kaufman and his uh fictitious uh twin brother uh i'm blanking on i'm blanking on the name this donald. is a very professional donald donald this is a very professional podcast uh, everyone oh <laughs> yeah hell yeah and it's basically about him adapting uh this book called the orchid uh, the orchid thief into a movie and it's basically about his struggles trying to adapt uh trying to adapt this into a film and like all of Charlie Kaufman's writings, it devolves into this huge crisis about people's identities and the nature of being alive and all other sorts of crazy, mind-bending 
meta wildness. So let's go with, I guess, initial thoughts. We both uh, realized that this was our second time seeing this film, and so interesting to hear, you know, what were your first impressions when you first saw it, and then sort of what are your initial thoughts seeing it for a second time? Uh, when I, I remember the first time I saw it, I remember liking it, but not being as crazy about it as I thought I might be, being as big a Charlie Coffin fan as I am. I, I, found, I found a lot of it to be very funny. And I also remember there being some like very witty classic moments of Charlie Kaufman, but I also remember feeling that some of it was a bit slow, a bit boring, a bit drawn out. Uh, and then the second time I saw it, I picked up a lot more things that I didn't really notice before. Things that make the movie seem a lot more meta. And I appreciated that a lot more about it. And like certain things that I wasn't exactly sure what they meant before clicked together this time around. And they don't seem... Because like, okay, so I guess we'll just say like, like where it le- like where the film leads to, the first time I remember it seemed very out of nowhere. But then when you watch it this time and recontextualize things, and we can talk about this in a little bit, like it all comes together and it seems like the perfectly odd way to end this. As odd, weird as that sounds to say. Um, but yeah, but second time I watched it, I'm way bigger fan than the first time, and I think it's only going to grow on me more. Totally. I'm right with you there where I think, I think one of the reasons that, that, uh, that, that tells me that this film feels much better to me is that when I first saw it, it was a little bit after I graduated high school, I was probably, I don't know, 19 or 20 the first time I saw it. And back then I still had like a huge interest in movies, but you know, the probably, like the biggest extent of, I guess, and I really kind of hate this term, but the biggest extent of an art house movie that I had been interested in at that point was maybe, you know, There'll Be Blood. And so otherwise I was more into, at that point I was more into films like, um, you know, Super Bad or Die Hard. And so I hadn't really opened myself to films that were this sort of, existential or sublime or things like that and so i thought it was interesting you know i liked the whole concept of nicholas cage playing you know something decidedly different than anything i'd seen him in and the sort of meta aspects of it but i didn't truly get it because at that point i had not seen being john malkovich and so when i saw when i watched adaptation for the second time me you know all, and it's funny because i think about well since i saw it probably around when i was 19 it was almost 10 years ago um that after you know growing growing up more being interested in writing and creating art and after seeing basically all of john uh all of charlie coffin's work it feels such so much more sad and crushing and but also funny and relatable and i found i found this to be like felt like a very deeply personal movie mm-hmm. well you said relatable and I think we were talking earlier a little bit about how the the struggle that charlie goes through like the real charlie kaufman goes through 
how that's reflected between the fictitious Charlie Kaufman and the fictitious Donald Kaufman. Like, that struggle that he tries to show, like, of a writer, like, I think is pretty spot on. There's this, like, there's this great, you know, when anytime you're reading these books about writing and they, you know, giving you these advices, it's, they always say, you know, don't worry about being the next Nolan, don't worry about being the next Kaufman, just be the next you. But that's kind of a very vague thing to tell someone who doesn't even know who they are and, like, what their voice is. <clears throat> so it's funny to try to want to ex- to see the balance of, like, wanting to explore yourself and, like, maintain that artistic side of yourself and that unique voice of yourself while also trying to realize you are trying to sell a product. So at what point do you, like, abandon this stance you've taken on art and then just, like, tell a story? And I think that's like perfectly reflected between Charlie and Donald, and it plays for some great laughs too. Oh, for sure. The that was, uh, I think that was the thing too, is that the more I've been, you know, invested and obsessed with writing since the first time I saw it, the just hilariousness that this film has. I mean, I cannot think of something more outrageous and absurd than you know charlie kaufman going to robert mckee's uh <laughs> writing seminar and it was just the great. funny just funny thing and like having brian cox play him and just having like charlie the, the idea that charlie kaufman like could be so desperate in like writer's block that he would seek advice from you know a person who has had like three imdb credits of like a single episode of tv right like, <laughs> it's just so amazing and just the way it lines up like when he's you know the way uh the voiceover ends right as robert mckee is like you know saying how voiceover never works in a movie and it's just the, the amount of i guess the amount of disdain that that him and Spike show for like screenwriting gurus is just amazing and so like so perfectly uh so perfectly sarcastic and just vicious. Mm-hmm. Well, the second time around watching it, I think it's interesting like how much like how much you really wish you were like a Donald Kaufman of the world. Like how like I think he, like he's definitely played to be an idiot or like this buffoon. But, like, he's the one that really ends out on top. And when it's all said and done, well, you know, of course, after, before he, spoiler, before he dies. Um, but the, but just this idea that, like, you know, everybody wants to be that, the person who doesn't care about what other people think of them. And you just do it for the sake of doing it. Um, but even though it's like I think it's portrayed in this as like that's may not be always ideal or like against your own values, but realistically, maybe that's the best way to be living life. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things that's so funny is that you know we we're talking um, you know before we started about how there's this sort of divide between him you know writing his weird like esoteric like talking about like oh I want to write this film that's about flowers and you know, he wants to avoid you know kind of having this like writing about this la roche character who's basically like a version of you know um joe exotic like and he's like no i want to, like this is a film about like flowers about the 
and you know this uh, the esotericism of it and then it's like that but then combined with like donald who's just writing the most like horrid um like terrible sounding screenplay of all time and you know the idea of talking about like the you know the sort of like jealousy of like oh i wish that i could be that person who could just you know write out like a hall like a hollywood hit that just gets um you know uh, that just gets greenlit and is shot you know just like these run-of-the-mill like scripts when it's like funny because he doesn't have the he doesn't have the self-awareness or i guess or the or the arrogance to realize that he has accomplished that you know i think you could easily if you were to do a list of you know the best screenwriters um since hollywood started you know charlie coffin's in the top 10 if not the top five and so the so the fact that he has the insecurities not realizing he's accomplished it it's kind of uh and it's kind of ridiculous because it's like all right well if you're not the gold standard then who is like how like it's impossible to accomplish because you know i think i think just writing eternal sunshine in the spotless mind alone would be you know a life achievement and so it's interesting seeing that someone who is quite literally like a savant having these same like struggles helps make that movie so personal Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think what's so great is that his struggle seems unique but really it's not um his just seems to be on like a grander scale or like the way the movie portrays it like his struggle is greater than anybody else's um but really it's just like the the everyday struggle of man or mankind uh like the idea of like wishing you could be someone else and um so like, i like how in this one like that is sort of represented as the donald character so in being john malkovich like you just know that all these characters like you get that they go through a portal into literally so literally become somebody else and I like how in this one it be like that someone else becomes now his fictitious twin brother. Yeah, for sure. Which and and then that also brings to sort of not the gimmick, but the I guess the high concept aspect of this movie is that we have uh, and what is truly one of the most genius castings of all time is you have Nicolas Cage playing Charlie Kaufman and the twin brother and so it's interesting having him play these two roles and it's so so perfect so i want to take um a little bit to talk in defense of nicholas cage because i think he is like truly one of those actors who doesn't get the recognition that he that he deserves which is funny because you know he's obviously a movie star and one of the most well-known actors uh like on the planet but i think that you know truly like the amount of just i think he gets overshadowed so much by some of the um ridiculous work that he's done and look i'm not gonna go ahead and 
uh, I'm not going to go ahead and say, like, oh, yeah, Con Air is, like, an art masterpiece or, you know, the vampire movies that, like, the vampire movie he did, like, that he doesn't do ridiculous things. But when Nicolas Cage is at the top of his game, I feel like there are a few actors that can compare with him. And, you know... Well, it's amazing because I think Nicolas Cage is, like, a good representation of the Charlie Donald. So, like, when he wants to, like, a film like Mandy, a film like <clears throat> Adaptation, a film like... Wild National, at Heart. National Treasure. <laughs> oh, Wild at Heart. Oh, okay, sure. We'll go Wild Heart. Um, like, he can do it representing, like, the Charlie. But in reality, I think he just does things for the sake of doing them. And he just wants to do them because it sounds fun, not what we're going to think about it on some podcasts. So in a lot of ways, he's like a Donald, really, in real life. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, I think to an extent, too, it seems like, I mean, it's impossible to... It's impossible to speculate on these things, but it seems like the films that have less of a direction um, to him are the ones where he had, where he makes the more outrageous choices. You know, like the the Wicker Man remake being probably the most sure. famous of, you know, outrageous Nicolas Cage is an example. But yeah, I think that he is one of the, he's definitely one of the best character actors. You know, it's funny too because he's definitely a movie star, but had is one of like the few people where they fit both the realm of being a movie star and a character actor. I think, I think Samuel L. Jackson's probably the only other one that I can think of. I can't help but think of how this movie would play out if Adam Sandler was the role of Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman. Yeah, that's interesting. That's uh, and the Sandman's been on my mind because you know Uncut Gems has come to Netflix, so I need to go and give that a watch because I haven't seen it since the second time I saw it in theaters. But you need yeah, to pick up I the think... Blu-ray. Oh, that's true. I definitely need to get the Blu-ray. Um, that would be an interesting thing, but I think uh, and I think it would be an amazing to see that uh to see. Adam Sandler in you know Spike Jones's world. However, I don't think that could work because if you have Adam Sandler in adaptation, then that's too close to his character in Punch Drunk Love, and those films came out within two years of each other. Nay, yeah, you're not wrong. He just comes to mind as one of those people where, in the right hands, he shines, <clears throat> but in reality, he just likes to take the roles that he likes to take because he likes to work with his buds. Yeah, Can't I mean, if anyone. Right. If anyone has doubts about Adam Sandler, which you shouldn't at this point, and you and you think Uncut Gems is just a fluke, watch the Meyerowitz stories, uh, which is on Netflix, which is a truly um, amazing work by Noah Baumbach and you know Adam Sandler, just proving that you know when he wants to be, he can be one of the best actors. Mm-hmm. Um. When you read Charlie Kaufman's Wikipedia influences, he does not reference Kurt Vonnegut at all, which I find ridiculous. That opening monologue that Nicholas, that uh, Charlie Kaufman gives is like that's straight out of a Kurt Vonnegut story. Yeah, I find that I find that very strange. I and even if he isn't mentioned, it seems impossible that uh, Kurt Vonnegut was because it seems so apparent throughout all his work like it's so cynical and so um Mm self-deprecating absolutely and the the sort of realm of science fiction 
Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the things that, like, kind of stood out to me this time, so I mentioned earlier that, like, where the story builds to seemingly kind of seems nonsensical. But then it's, but what's something that stood out to me this time is at the very beginning when he's talking to Tilda Swinton's character, and he goes on on about how he doesn't want to have sex, he doesn't want to have drugs, he doesn't want guns and car chases, and, you know, he wants it just to be about flowers. It's amazing how when adaptation the, when the film progresses, literally all of those things come into play. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, just like, kinda... have, like when you have the love story, and then randomly you find out that they're using the blood orchid to like make like this coke, essentially, to like someone being killed, to like car accidents, guns, like it all like comes together. And like that's, I think that's where like that's where it clicked for me the second time around. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I can definitely. Um, I can definitely see that because it feels what? it feels random, but I think I think I made it maybe I made a point when we weren't recording about how this um oh I just dropped my train of thought what the hell um oh how there's so much buried in dialogue that I think it's very easy to miss certain things and then. So like when something comes, it seemingly comes out of nowhere, but really it's just connected to this little piece of dialogue that I have at the very beginning that you may not even have been paying attention to. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It puts in little... Uh... Like it's funny because like in his opening monologue, he calls himself a fat piece of shit. And then when LaRoche dies, like Susan Orleans calls him a fat piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Um... Another aspect of it that is amazing is the fact that they recreated. Um, oh, I'm not even sure how necessarily they did it. Uh, if maybe they superimposed him onto it, but like the shots from uh, being John Malkovich that were uh, that had Nicolas Cage in them. Okay. Oh yeah, well it's only one shot, right? That shows him in it because it's bouncing around. It shows John Malkovich and it shows the first assistant director and then it shows one random shot of charlie kaufman right yeah well then there's also the scene where he's um hanging on the set uh he's hanging on the set where it shows you know the the small hallway and then it cuts to donald talking to one oh, of right, the right. production assistants yeah maybe it's like i don't know they very well could have brought the characters back to reach to restage that i'm not sure I would be curious to know. Cause are they are they credited as actual actors in the movie? Um, I don't know. I'm gonna have to go and check those. Um, I'm gonna, let me check real quick. I'll. Uh... Oh, while you're checking that, it's actually funny because I pulled up uh, Kurt Von, uh, pulled up Charlie Kaufman's uh, Wikipedia, and apparently, um, in between, uh, uh in between. Synecdoche and um, I can't remember what the other one was called. The uh, the the one he did the like stop animation one. He apparently oh Anomalisa. Anomalisa, yeah. He he apparently wrote a adaptation a screenplay of Slaughterhouse Five. So it didn't get it didn't get produced. <sighs> but oh my god, that would have been amazing. Exactly, but it's funny because it's like yeah, of course you know. Charlie Kaufman is the closest we have to Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, it just shows them as playing themselves uncredited, so... 
interesting. So I'm not, I don't know what that means. That didn't solve anything. Yeah, I mean, it could have either... Um, it could have either they refilmed using the set, or they probably... My guess is they must have had those shots lying around, and they superimposed them similar to, you know, Forrest Gump, um, which is really, really funny to think of that John Malkovich might have actually <laughs> went on that sort of, like, snappy rant he did on set. <laughs> I, I, I mean, part of me hope that's true. Yeah, it was so, so funny. Well, that footage seems like it could be, like, behind the documentary stuff. Yeah, right. absolutely. The one where Charlie Kaufman's lingering around the set trying to get John Cusack or Catherine Keener to wave to him. Yeah, I don't know how they did that. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, yeah, and then it's just like... Well, no, they could have brought him back, potentially, because there is one scene where Catherine Keener is sitting with Donald and talking about playing the role of that woman in his screenplay. Yeah. So, that's... so it's possible they just brought him back for like a day to reshoot that. Yeah. So, the other big thing about this film that I noticed, and this is what and this is what I love about this idea for this podcast and what we're doing, is that it's, it's going to be so interesting when we do uh, Where the Wild Things Are next week, because, um, because this film, you know, is the last collaboration Spike Jones does with Charlie Kaufman. And it's going to be so interesting seeing the changes between here and there. But I don't know about you, but this film feels so much more like Kaufman's signature than Spike Jones, which is like, which I mean, it seems obvious because the movie is literally about him being, um, you know, trying to write the movie we're watching. But, and try, but I was trying to think of the sort of, the visual cues, the visual aspects of what feel of what would feel identifiable more to a Spike Jones thing than uh, necessarily what's just being shot of Charlie Kaufman. And one thing that came to mind is the final shot of the movie, of what felt such like something that um, only Spike Jones could visualize, where you have that sort of sped up like that time-lapse footage of those flowers in LA blooming and so that itself to me was like oh there is that sort of whimsical uh extravagance that you know Spike Jones brings to it I think where the wild things are in her are gonna be more revelatory about his stuff because I think I remember I think I said this with being John Malkovich where like when you have these like super heady ideas you want to just have like a very simple medium to allow that to breathe and come through. So like adaptation like visually feels very similar to being John Malkovich. Like I think it's a lot of like very simple camera angles, very simple cuts. Um, and then it really just allows like the story to breathe. And so when we get into where the wild things are, when he does not have that metaphysical thing going for him, but I think that's where we'll see how he starts to sort of spice it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because Where the Wild Things Are is the film I'm least familiar with with uh, Spike Jones. I've only seen it once, and uh, 
But it's going to be interesting. It, would, it was obviously one of my favorite books as a six-year-old, so... I remember it being a lot, like, darker and depressing than I thought it would be, but I don't think I'd have a problem with that now. Yeah, for sure. So I'm very excited about that. Um, Performance-wise, uh, Chris Cooper is just one of those character actors who's great and everything, but I definitely... Um, I don't remember what else came out this year, but I, you know, makes a lot of sense to me that he got the um, that he got the Oscar for uh, for his performance because it truly. Oh, you know, Chris! Oh, like, did he? Nice. Yeah. Um, let me let me go and fact check that. I know he got nominated. Awesome. Yeah, I think the cat. Like, I think the, the casting of Nicolas Cage is incredible. It works on a lot of levels. Chris Cooper won a Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, okay. Chris Cooper is great. Um, like, I don't know. I, I'm like whatever on Meryl Streep. Like, she definitely has that air about her. Like, she can play that New Yorker type character very well. Seymour feels like she like fits that type of person more than like I think she delivers anything that's mind blowing. Yeah, it's not. I mean. Meryl Streep's one of those people where it's like, she she's great in everything she does, but this isn't you know this isn't Kramer versus Kramer or Sophie's Choice. You know it's not it it's not Meryl Streep taking the entire film. Um, but uh, yeah, no, she is definitely good. I mean, obviously though, this is Nicolas Cage's movie. Oh yeah, he's the one. That, you know, he's obviously the the bright. See, the Meryl Streep is literally just, she's just doing her thing, so she just sort of blends in. It's like the Chris Cooper and the Nicolas Cage who don't normally do these, like types of things that like really stand out. Yeah, um, just uh, as an aside, I pulled up the Oscars for that year, and uh, Chicago won Best Picture, which I actually. Um, uh, I can actually get behind that. Maybe not necessarily when you look at who won Best Director, but it was actually... Uh, whenever we eventually set up a Patreon, I want to do an entire episode about musicals. Um, Asking a lot worry. of me here. Uh, I'll, I'll convert you. Uh, but it's funny, uh, Roman Polanski won for The Pianist uh, Best Director that year. It was good. That's a brut- brutal film. Yeah, it's... I don't know. Overhyped for me. Actually, not even overhyped. I didn't even hear any hype about it. But I was not. I was not blown away by that one. Um, I I would say that it's not necessarily that at the top of his films. But you can see like why the Oscars would love the pianist. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and truly, Adrian Brody, I think you know gives. Oh, he is incredible. He won Best Actor, right? I believe. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. Yes. Yeah, and I can see that too. Yeah, no, it's a great. But we're not here to talk about the pianist, Andrew. We're here to talk about adaptation. Yes, exactly. But it wouldn't be a true podcast with you if we didn't go on weird tangents. That's true. Okay. That's what makes it so, so fun. Yeah. Um. So like, otherwise, about this film, uh, one thing I will say about it so is that this has... I wouldn't even necessarily say a lackluster score, but it doesn't have the same sort of 
kind of fantastic score that Spike Jones is known for in his films. You know, I cannot recall anything about the score. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, it doesn't like it doesn't really stand out to me at all, which is like strange because when we talk about her, you know, that's one of the songs where I think is one of the greatest things about it is that it has such an amazing score and music cues. But this and where this the Wild Things are too, I remember. I remember having a, having good cues. Uh yeah, well, because I believe that one was also scored by um, the people from Arcade Fire, like her was, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, so I know where the wild things are was one hundred percent Arcade Fire, but and I think yeah, I think no, her definitely was too. Gotcha. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah, uh, but yeah, this one doesn't have the same uh, sort of you know musical, but it's still so great um i think as far as sort of like the supporting people in this brian cox is just amazing you know as um mickey like he's just so perfect they're just playing this like obtuse like scam artist i do think it's hilarious because i own that book by robert mickey that's so funny i I mean it's i have not read it but i have it i have read more than my share of screenwriting books and some things have uh lots of uh you know helpful stuff but i will say and here's a plug not we're not getting paid for anything but in my opinion the best advice on screenwriting i've ever gotten has been from the podcast script notes which um it's hosted by john august and craig mason who john august wrote um a lot of the tim burton films such as um uh such as big fish charlie and chocolate factory um corpse bride and then um the most recent uh that aladdin remake and then craig mason uh wrote uh, films like the hangover sequels and also hbo's chernobyl and so yeah and it's cool because they do a lot of great things about writing advice and they basically you know they they debunk a lot of um a lot of the sort of things that screenwriting gurus talk about and stuff and they basically um you know take a lot of the rule a lot of things that people uh say as rules and say hey you don't actually necessarily have to do that while also doing cool things like analyzing scripts and then you know giving writing advice so if you're at all interested in uh screenwriting or just writing in general i think script notes is a great podcast to listen to that's good to know but i've not heard of them yeah i think you'll i think you'll love it we'll definitely uh talk about it after podcast so yeah i think um overall i would say that this is the adaptations a pretty great movie i like being John Malkovich a little bit more just because of its scope and you know such a weird high concept plot but I love how deep into sort of identity and you know I'm usually not I usually don't like art about anxiety just because I feel that it's never presented in a way that's interesting or it feels as if when people make art that they say is about um you know anxiety or depression stuff it feels as if 
that that is being used as sort of a way to prop up something that isn't actually about anything. Whereas this, I feel like, shows um, actually like the neurosis that someone is going through and is far more vulnerable than, you know, than say like a picture of someone um, looking sad on a bed. Yeah, and I think a lot of other things also feel like very written. <clears throat> like the dialogue feels very heavy-handed or um, like just kind of cliche imagery where I think you're right. I think in adaptation, it, it seems... <clears throat> well, I think what works is that it's Charlie Kaufman fictionalizing his own life. So in a way, like it already feels grounded. And like you feel like you're getting a little snapshot into this guy's actual life, so I think that helps it. That helps you feel a little bit more for that main character. And like you feel the anxiety of him, and that the awkwardness of him, like blowing you know cues by his dates that she wants to kiss or do this or do that or like obvious cues that he's not picking up on that, like that are frustrating honestly to see. Oh, totally. And just like, yeah, I was watching, uh, it was such a painful thing watching him just blow the opportunity with his date when, you know, she asks him to come in and he's just like, just completely flubs and you can feel that that must be something that happened to him personally. Like that feels like must have been a thing. (laughs) Yes, I agree. But I love adaptation so much more and... I I think I like it a lot more on the third watch. I hope to get more from it. Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely interested in giving this a, another rewatch soon. So um, I guess uh, any last thoughts on it, I would say that this is definitely a great, a great film. But I would say it's probably medium in uh, Charlie Kaufman's work, you know, as if you were to rank as like screenplays and stuff, and I'd say probably it's, it's hard looking at Spike Jones when he only has like four films, you know, it makes like a hard list, but I would say it's probably on the, probably on the lower end. If I were to, if I were to guess my rankings for um, Spike Jones on any given day, it would probably go her as my favorite being John Malkovich adaptation and then where the wild things are. They might be, that might be what I say. Mm-hmm. But yeah, overall I would say um, it's pretty good. And you know, I'd probably give this a four out of five. I think it's a good companion piece with being John Malkovich. Like when you look at Spike Jones's work and Charlie Kaufman's work, I think you can very nicely piece adaptation with being John Malkovich. Uh, I think I go four and a half out of five. Interesting. I can definitely, I can definitely respect that. That's, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's definitely has a lot of value. This I'll is say the a, first time I watched it, I think I would have given it a three and a half. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably where it's at. You know, like a three, three and a half when I first saw it. But that's the amazing thing is about watching movies is how they as how your relationship to them evolves. So, you know, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, one thing I'd recommend to everyone is if there's a movie you saw forever ago that you feel conflicted about or don't necessarily really remember 
how you felt about it, give it another watch because you'll be um, surprised how movies can change throughout your life. And if you really loved it, definitely rewatch it to see. I rewatched I rewatched Ace Ventura. Oof. Yeah, you you can't you can't go wrong. That one was hard to let go. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I like I haven't seen Ace Ventura in like several years, and I don't want to. I, I don't want to admit that it might not be funny. Yeah, cherish that. Cherish the memories you have. <laughs> Love that. All right, so that was, you know, that was our discussion on adaptation. Now, if you were listening last week, you would have you have heard that we recommended that you watch the movies Synecdoche, New York, and Trash Humpers. For this. For this week, what I'm recommending you watch is Nicolas Cage's greatest performance, and that is in the Coen Brothers classic Raising Arizona. This is by far one of the great American comedies, and if you are at all a fan of Edgar Wright's movies, he has said before in interviews that Raising Arizona is the film that made him want to start making movies. Uh, to give it the brief synopsis, uh, Nicolas Cage plays this dumb career criminal and Holly Hunter plays uh, this police officer, or she might be a corrections officer. I think she's a police officer, regardless of works at the jail. And after just years of constantly taking his mugshot, they eventually fall in love but they and get married. But it turns out that uh, Holly Hunter is unable to have is unable to have kids, and no adoption agency will allow uh, this convicted felon to adopt a kid. So when they discover that a local car dealership owner has had seven kids, they then decide of the genius plan to steal one of the babies for their own because they don't want to miss it. I cannot describe the level of hilarity of this movie. It is just one of the greatest of all time and Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter just absolutely kill it and has, you know, one of the best uh, supporting roles of John Goodman. And it, it's just amazing on all fronts, the camera work, everything. But what makes this film so great and why I'm recommending it is that Nicolas Cage grounds it in a perfect humanity. And it's one of the things of, this is a prime example. If anyone says that Nicolas Cage isn't, a good actor then you know watch raising arizona and that'll change your opinion wholesale watch national treasure you'll change your opinion there you go yeah i'm changing my opinion on a lot of things um i guess just sticking to the charlie kaufman theme like identity of crisis and your position your place in the world go check out anomalisa uh it's interesting to see him work with claymation i think it is or puppets no. yeah i think it's it? a stop motion i'll i'll be honest i haven't seen anomalisa it's oh, really? uh, definitely been on um it's definitely been on my list for sure for like a long time but it's um i wasn't sure based on the way like on the format of like watching like a stop animation one that i don't know but it's definitely something i plan on watching in the, it works out really nicely 
because he's able to like do a sort of Charlie Kaufman quirky thing where there's only two voice actors in the entire movie. There's David Thewlis, who plays the main character whose name I'm forgetting, and then Jennifer Jason Lee plays the voice of every other character. And it's supposed to be that... No, sorry. There's somebody... So, sorry, there's three voice actors. So there's David Thewlis as the main guy. There's one actor who's playing the voice of everybody else. So the main character, like, suffers from a condition where everybody's voice sounds the same until he meets Jennifer Jason Lee's character. Anomaly. That's so interesting. Her name's Lisa. Yeah, Lisa. See, I just love it because, like, all of his concepts are just so... You could never think of them on your own it's interesting too because from what i've read about it it was originally a radio play and that's how it was um originally released before it was made into a movie oh interesting i did not hear that could be uh but no it's um i like it like quite a bit and his it's, it's interesting to see him working in that like in that format yeah for sure sweet so those are Definitely two great movies. And once again, very opposite of Spectrum, which is good. You know, where I think uh, I think something that we'll do after we complete the uh, after we complete this season is we'll release the notes all the films we've recommended as double features and you know, can uh, give them to the people so they have a new watch list. So yeah, so for next week we'll be talking about where the wild things are which is spike jones first film without charlie kaufman and you know if you have the time definitely make sure to watch raising arizona and anomalisa do it thank you so much for listening this has been the director's deep dive Toss the dice, it had to be The only one for me is you And you for me So happy together